0: Bible with you, I open up to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, this is our third week in this section of Colossians, um, known as the Household Codes, and we're going to finish it up this week. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the Pew Bible in front of you. It'll be on page 1045. And as always, if uh, anything comes up, any questions or uh, thoughts about the passage, you can text our Q&R number and we will interact with those. Um at the end, so let me pray for us uh, one more time, and we'll get going. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness, we thank you for your grace. Um, God, the reality is is we are we are broken and sinful people, and we um, we are unable to be with you to be near you to be uh part of your family in in the state that we Find ourselves in and you 've you 've met our need in your son, we just thank you for the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, thank you for the grace that we 've been given the new life, the adoption, uh, the gift of the holy Spirit and God this morning as we as we read your word, I, I just pray that we would um, we would just be equipped um, God we. We recognize that we live in a culture that is confusing, to say the least, and and there are many who would um, grow popular by um, disparaging our faith, and um, there are so many avenues with the internet to um, communicate uh, views that, that, that push against the Scriptures and um, and we're vulnerable, God, to, to those things. And I just pray that you would show, shore us up, that you would help us to understand your word more clearly, to be um, ready to give an answer for those who ask about the hope that's within us, um, and to to recognize the just the lifelong um, journey that we are on as your people in relationship to the Scriptures, that we are... Uh, constant learners, and we are continually growing, and, and that is, that's a task You've given us for, for Your glor- glory and our good. Uh, I just pray that um, we would be edified by Your Word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are we are working through this section. Uh, it's this is our third week in here. We talked a couple of weeks ago. We talked about husbands and wives. Last week we talked about parents and children, and, and this week we are going to talk about slaves and masters. Um, I wonder if you've ever been in that situation. I'm sure you probably have, where a friend has recommended a movie or a TV show, and and their their comment is like it's great, there's, there's just a little swearing in it. Or, or it's great, but it, it's just, it's a little violent. And then you go watch it, and it's like profanity the whole way through, or it's just like horrific violence the whole way through. And, and you realize that like, oh, you, whoever you're talking to, they've, they've kind of been desensitized to that thing, and they don't, they don't really see it anymore. And, and I, was, I was thinking about this this week, And it's, it's easy to kind of look at the Scriptures and go, yeah, like, there's, a, there's a couple places in the Scriptures that talk about slavery. It's in there. But the more and more you read and look at the Bible, the more you see that the Bible is full of slavery. Uh, a couple examples. Uh, in Genesis 16, we, we have a story uh, about Abraham. Before he's named Abraham, his name's Abram. And in Genesis 16 it says Abram's wife Sarai had not borne any children for him but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar Sarai said to Abram since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children go to my slave perhaps through her I can build a family And Abraham agreed or Abram agreed to what Sarai said so Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar her Egyptian slave and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him This happened after Abraham had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years and he slept with Hagar and she became pregnant and so, very early on, 16 chapters into the whole book, and we have this um, story about this man who is a, a hero in the faith who keeps slaves. And this one particular slave, this, this young woman Hagar, is um, basically forced into marriage with him and and told to produce children on his behalf. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, and, and that's just kind of been a story that you've heard. It's kind of just, it's one of the stories in the Scriptures. But if you take a step back from it, it's kind, of, it's kind of shocking. There's another story in Genesis. Judah said to his brothers in chapter 37, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. It's kind of them. And his brothers agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph from the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. So these these men, they decide the best way to get rid of their meddlesome brother is to sell him into slavery in Egypt. And then fast forward a little bit to the book of Exodus. At the very beginning of Exodus, we read that a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt and he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Let's come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. And this is kind of the... The context, the setup for the whole story of Scripture is, is infused with this institution of slavery where, where some people forcibly take others and, and, and treat them as property and consider them owned. And then we get into the law, the, the, the Torah, the, the, the law commands that are given to the people of Israel. We read some good things. Exodus 21, whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death, whether he sells him or the person is found in his possession. So, there's this this idea that, that slavery is a wrong thing, that you shouldn't do it. In Deuteronomy, do not return a slave to his master when he has escaped from his master to you. Let him live among you wherever he wants within your city gates. Do not mistreat him. You're not supposed to return a runaway slave. But then there's other verses that make us uncomfortable. Later on in Exodus 21, it says, When a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod, and the slave dies under his abuse, the owner must be punished. However, if the slave can stand up after a day or two, the owner should not be punished because he is his owner's property. And you read stuff like that verse, and it it kind of makes you uncomfortable because the reality is there are lots of people out in the world that are seeking to discredit the Bible and Christianity, and they will easily point this kind of stuff out. And you'll, if, you, if you frequent YouTube or um, Instagram or TikTok, there are lots of people who make it their role, their job in life to throw these things out and say, look how terrible the Bible is. Look how bad the Christian God is. Look how awful the Christian faith is. And you walk away going like, yeah, I don't really think we should own people? So, what are we supposed to do with that? So, this is a passage in Colossians that's very similar. Paul is talking about the relationship between slaves and their masters in ancient Colossae. So, in order to get some background, I want to talk a little bit about what slavery in the ancient world looked like. And I want to give you three uh, realities about ancient slavery. And this is, it comes from a section in Dan Kimball's book, How Not to Read the Bible, which is a great book if you're interested in kind of the apologetics of scripture. But the first thing is in the ancient world, it was common to sell yourself to pay off a debt or to escape poverty. So there's, there's no social safety net in the Roman Empire. If you cannot bring in income, you will starve to death and die. There was no welfare, there was no food stamps. And there also weren't really a lot of what we would call companies. You know, a lot of us, I have conversations all the time, we're in this this weird economic market where, where we are having trouble paying rent um, and our jobs are not paying as much as they used to and inflation is high and lots of us are talking about getting a second job or getting a raise or a promotion or finding new work or whatever. We have so many options today, which didn't really exist in the ancient world. If you were poor and you, you, you didn't have a, um, a skill, a trade that you could leverage for income, one of the ways to provide for your family was to sell yourself into slavery for at least a season so that you can earn a living. Second reality is slavery was really, really common in the ancient world. More than 30% of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. That's a lot of people. And one thing that we need to remember about Scripture is that God isn't always laying out ideal moral direction. The Bible's God's word, it's inspired, He is speaking it, but sometimes Scripture is just describing a situation, not prescribing an action. And other times, the laws of God are given in the midst of a system that isn't ideal. The third thing to think about slavery is that in the ancient world, slavery was not race-based like we think of it today. We just, um, last Monday, officially celebrated Juneteenth for the second time. It was made a national holiday last year, and I talked to several of you who were like, surprised because the banks were closed and we didn't get mail because it's a brand new federal holiday. And it's, it's in celebration of the day in, on June 19th in 1865 when the enslaved peoples in Texas were informed that they'd been freed, that the war was over and that Texas, a Confederate state, has been um, defeated and the African-American slaves were no longer enslaved. So, this race-based enslavement of the African American people is the context that we see slavery in. But we have to remember in the ancient world that slavery was not race-dependent. Abram had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Joseph was the great-grandson of Abram, and he was sold as a slave to the Egyptians. Your ethnicity wasn't a factor in your slavery. And so these are things that we need to keep in mind when we talk about slavery, but sometimes they're just used to kind of give biblical slavery a pass. Well, these are true, so we don't have to think any further about it. But I I think in order to understand the Scriptures, we need to think a little harder. The kind of key text with this issue for the Christian faith is that in Genesis 1, we read, "Let let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. This is the foundational statement of what's called the image of God in humanity, right? We as Christians believe that every human person is valuable and equal in the sight of God. And it is from this place that everything else about how we treat one another flows. This is why the the news this week that Roe versus Wade has been overturned is good news. Now, our country is far from a place where the unborn will be protected universally, but to take that off the books at the federal level is a big step in the right direction to promoting the image of God in the lives of the unborn. And the image of God speaks to issues of abortion and elder care and euthanasia and racism and immigration and all of these things touch on this idea that all people are valuable. And so if that's kind of the foundation that Scripture gives us for looking at people, this idea of owning another person seems a little dissonant. Just to to remind us all, with the household codes, Paul is using a genre of literature that was developed by Aristotle about 400 years earlier, and uh, he, in it, Aristotle lays out the basic unit of society, which is the marriage relationship, the child-parent relationship, and the slave-master relationship. And he says that this unit of society is the building block that all of culture is made on. And Aristotle gives the pater familias, the head of the household, absolute authority over everyone in his care. The Roman codes were addressed to the men, the people in power, and they were instructions on how to deal with those people that were under their authority. But we see in this passage that Paul flips the script on that. He addresses everyone in the room. He addresses the wives, he addresses the children, he addresses the slaves who are all part of the Christian community. And he focuses on the fact that Jesus is the Lord of the Christian household. So we're gonna, we get to this section in verse 22 and we read, slaves. Obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done from the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. So typically, when when we as 21st century Americans would read something like this, I think the thing that stands out right off the bat is that Paul isn't condemning slavery. If the image of God is in all people and the idea of owning another person is a fundamental um, sinful thing, why doesn't Paul just come out and say, slaves, you're free. Masters, you need to release your slaves. You're Christians now. So here's some context. This letter is traveling to Colossae with another letter, uh, the letter to Philemon. It's a few pages over in your Bible. Philemon owns the home where one of the Colossian churches meets, and he's the master of a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus is one of the people delivering the letter to the church at Colossae. We'll read about him later on in chapter 4. And if you read Philemon, it's short, you can do it quickly, Paul doesn't really condemn slavery there either but instead he does what he does here. He applies the gospel to the institution of slavery with the intent of transforming the Colossians' understanding of it. And a, a couple of weeks, this, is, this has to do with something I talked about a couple of weeks ago with regard to husbands and wives, and that's the idea of the authority of command and the authority of counsel. There are some institutions that have the authority of command. The government is, a, is an institution that has the authority of command. They can create a law and if you don't follow the law, they can put you in jail or they can kill you. That's, that's their authority. They can make you do something. Other institutions and other people have the authority of counsel. They have authority, they have leadership, but all that they can do is seek to persuade you. And in Philemon, while Paul says that he could have the authority of command because he is an apostle and he could order Philemon to do the right thing, he chooses instead to try to persuade Philemon to see in the gospel a new relationship between him and Onesimus. And for many of us, though, that still feels a little weak. Why not just use your authority, Paul, and say this is a bad thing and it needs to stop? And I think there's two reasons for this. The first one is that we live in a society where we have power. Ancient Rome is not a democracy. We we take for granted that we have institutions and organizations built around issues of justice. We can protest. We can petition, um, even engage in civil disobedience in support of a cause. Christians throughout the history of America have done this to move the ball of justice forward. Ancient Christians couldn't do that. Here's Mike Heiser's thoughts on it. He says, So why doesn't Paul advocate rebellion or protesting in mass, going down to the Roman Senate, a bunch of Christians there with posters? Why doesn't he advocate stuff like this, rebellion or protesting levels of advocacy? The short answer is he didn't want the slaves to be killed or taken away from their masters or sent to worse masters. They are the most vulnerable in the entire situation. They don't have rights. This is not a democracy. A lot of people living under Roman authority don't even have Roman citizenship. So the mechanisms that we take for granted for petitioning our government for cultural change were not available to the early Christians. If Paul had started a movement to emancipate all the slaves, the Roman legions would have quickly put that down. The second reason I think Paul doesn't do that is because we don't understand how crazy freeing the slaves would have seemed. Slavery in ancient Rome, I heard once um, would be like electricity is today. Slavery was the economic engine of the empire. Imagine that you are a scientist and you have discovered that electricity is causing everything that's broken about our lives, cancer and heart disease and birth defects and neurological problems and, and all kinds of these things that we struggle with. It's because of uh, the lights in our houses and the, um, uh, the, the cell phones that we use and the little batteries that we put in our baby monitors, all of that stuff is emi- uh, um, emitting some kind of wave that's causing all kinds of problems. And you go to whoever, the, 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 the US government or the United Nations or the, the, the governing body and you say, here are my findings, and they believe you. Well, they could decide, okay, tomorrow, we're gonna just shut off all of the electrical power in the entire world because it's bad and it's dangerous, well, then what would happen? How much food would spoil? How many people would starve to death? How many people would lose their jobs and be thrust into poverty? It would be massive chaos. Or they could say, this is bad, this is dangerous, we believe you, we need to have a roadmap to get off of this dangerous thing and remove it from our society. And I think God, through His Word, in Colossians and other places, is doing just that. He is weaning people off the institution of slavery by transforming people's hearts to see slaves as brothers and sisters made in God's image. So how does He do that? The first thing that Paul says in this text is, slaves, you have agency. Verse 22, slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. So the slaves in the church at Colossae, possibly the ones that serve in the house of Philemon, where the church meets, are being addressed by the Apostle Paul. And we've talked about this with regard to wives and regard to children, but the fact that these marginalized people are in the room, and Paul writes the letter to them specifically, would be groundbreaking. They're being spoken to directly by the apostle, and Paul is reimagining their calling, not just slaves to human masters, but as God's workers. He says, slaves, you are primarily accountable to God. In contrast, Aristotle wrote, the slave is entirely without the faculty of deliberation." In the the Greco-Roman mind, slaves did not have agency. They were not people. They were objects. And Paul completely upends this idea. He says, you are in the room and you can make a rational decision to follow Christ and you can live according to the values of the kingdom of God. And Paul's command here also throws their obedience into tension. He says, obey in everything. But then he says, You're working for the Lord. So when their master, who who might be unsaved, not all of the masters in in these situations were Christians, when their master comes to them and requires a sexual favor of them, which happened all the time, the slave has now been given agency to weigh, do I obey man or do I obey God? Because Paul says, I'm actually serving the Lord. And it might not seem much like much to us, but Paul is giving the Colossian slaves agency and responsibility over their actions that would have been seen as radical. And secondly, what Paul's doing is he says the slaves have worth. Verse 24, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. An inheritance is something that children receive from their parents, it's passed down from. The family. In Colossians 1, we read that Paul is giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. There's this idea that we are God's children. We've been adopted in the family of God and he, we are being given the kingdom, the inheritance from the Father. And Paul says, Slaves, you get the inheritance just like everyone else. In a society where slaves had no rights, they had no way to earn anything they had there even, even if there were multiple generations of slaves in a household the the father the, of a the, a slave father didn't have inheritance to give to his children inheritance wasn't a thing but Paul says you have an inheritance you are brothers and sisters in the community of God's people and you are serving Christ just like the rest of the community thirdly he says slaves are known Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. So, there's some disagreement here between scholars on on what this verse is actually referring to. It could be a warning for slaves that might not obey their masters, or it could be an encouragement to slaves against masters that may abuse their power. David Powell, in his commentary, argues that it's probably both. But either way, Paul says God is paying attention. He cares about these people that are considered objects by the rest of society, that the culture has said do not matter. But God says, No, I'm watching. I'm seeing your obedience. I'm seeing your faithfulness. I'm seeing when other people wrong you, and I'm taking note. And fourthly, Paul says that masters have obligations. Chapter 4 verse 1, Masters deal with your slaves justly and fairly since you know that you too have a master in heaven. So slaves are property in the ancient world. Masters could abuse them physically, emotionally, sexually. They could kill them if they wanted to. It was within their rights. When Paul says no, slaves should be treated with justice and equity just like every other image-bearer of God. Masters are called to actually treat their slaves like part of the family because they are part of the new family in Christ. This quote by John Chrysostom is, is great. He says, "'What is just? What is equal?' And he answers the question, to place them in plenty of everything and not allow them to stand in need of others, but to recompense them for their labors. For because I have said that they have their reward from God, do not you therefore deprive them of it? What he says back in the fifth century to masters and slaves is that Paul has just said, slaves have an inheritance from the Lord and masters, you are the means by which God is going to deliver that inheritance to them. Because you have been put in a place to steward this household. You are a person of means, and you get to use your position of power to bless them and be a source of their inheritance in this life. And then he gives the masters this not-so-subtle reminder that they are actually slaves of God. And this is a relationship that Paul uses to describe the Christian in many places. In, in chapter 4, later on, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And our English Bibles do us a disservice here because the word servant is the word doulos, which is the same word that's translated slave just a chapter earlier. Epaphras is a slave of Christ Jesus. Even Paul, in, in many places, but Romans one one says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Paul is challenging the, those in power in Colossae that their relationships are being turned upside down. And that all seems fine, but if you're maybe thinking, like, well, okay, but still, like, what did that do for the slaves? How did that affect the world? Why Wouldn't it have been better, regardless of the consequences, to just march down to the Senate and demand emancipation for the slaves? See, the reality is, is that the gospel bears fruit Really slowly sometimes, doesn't it? Jesus tells a lot of stories about the kingdom of God and how it works. Here's one in Mark. He says, the kingdom of God is like this. A man scattered seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seeds sprout and grow, and although he doesn't know how, the soil produces a crop by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the full grain on the head. As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. A lot of Jesus's parables are agricultural and they focus on this idea that fruit grows slowly. Fruit takes time. I think we, hopefully we can all attest to that if you're a Christian here this morning, that the day that you started following Jesus, your life wasn't 100% transformed. Maybe you had new insight and you felt the power of the Holy Spirit in you and you had a new outlook on life, but there were still these things that were broken in you probably even still today. But after you get some history with the Lord, you look back and go like, over the past five years, over the past 10 years, I can see Him changing my life. I can see myself growing more patient. I can see myself being less angry or lustful or more truthful or more kind. Because while God can do amazing, miraculous things and instantly change people, and He does Most of the time, the kingdom of God bears fruit in our lives slowly. And I think that's the same way that the kingdom of God bears fruit in the life of the world at large. So what does God actually think about slavery? Here's a a couple places. 1 Timothy 1. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, and males who have sex with males, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which is entrusted to me, Paul says. Notice he says that these these laws are not meant for people who are righteous and holy. They're meant for people who break the law, who are lawless and rebellious. And then he lists not an exhaustive set of kinds of people, but several categories of people that fit this. And one of them is slave traders. They run afoul of the righteous law of God. 1 Corinthians 7 Paul's talking about life circumstances and and, and dealing with where you find yourself in life. And he says, were you called while a slave? Don't let it concern you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. See, Paul recognizes that, you know what? Ultimately, if you're a slave, you can still follow Christ, you shouldn't worry about it, but if you can get your freedom, you should try for that. Paul sees that the circumstances surrounding slavery are complex, but he recognizes that the institution itself is opposed to the values of the kingdom. I want to read a bit of the letter to Philemon, starting in verse 8. Paul says, for this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, remember Paul's apostle, he wrote some of the Bible, he could tell you what to do, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man and also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. I became his father while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he, was, he is useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending my very own heart. I wanted to keep him with me so that my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave as a dearly loved brother." He is especially so to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. See, the ethics of the kingdom of God are highly out of step with the dominant culture. And Paul exhorts Philemon with kindness and care to treat Onesimus not as a slave, but as a brother About this issue, Gavin Ortland writes, even before the actual institution of slavery is abolished, the work of the gospel abolishes the assumptions and prejudices that make slavery possible. In the first century, Paul is a leader in a small, powerless sect in a brutal empire. And powerless people can't use force or coercion or violence to transform the world. They use the power of the gospel. The BD Annabale says, this is the explosive dynamic of the gospel. It doesn't seem big, it doesn't seem confrontational, it doesn't seem all that massive, but its power is undeniable. Everywhere Christianity has been actually practiced, it has changed society in deep ways. Everywhere it has been actually practiced, it has changed the nature of human relationships. And this is true over and over and over again throughout the world. Christians who take the Scriptures seriously were constantly pushing back against the enslavement of other people. Gregory of Nyssa in the 4th century, uh, Bartolomé de las Casas in the 16th century, Frederick Douglass, William Wilberforce. These are just some of the people that read the Scriptures and went, hey, The gospel says that we should be doing things differently from our society, and we need to stand up against that. Tom Holland, who is a historian of um, the ancient world, says, "...the more racialized slavery in the colonies became, so the more Quakers and evangelicals came to the consciousness that the institution itself was damnable." a conviction that came to blaze like Pentecostal fire and has now swept the entire world so that everyone takes it for granted. This is the powerful, slow work of the gospel, that we live in a world today where the idea of owning another person is reprehensible, that it's not even an argument, it's not like this political society is pro-slavery, and this, or this political party is pro-slavery, and this political party is against slavery. It was relatively recent in our, in our past, but it's been worked out of our culture so much. And Holland says that the very reason it has left our cultural imagination is because of the power of the gospel. Because the assumption that all people are created equal, that all people are made in the image of God and all people have value, that's not a secular idea. That's not an idea that the Babylonians or the Persians or the Romans thought up. They had a very different idea of the value of people. It was the Christians that came on the scene and believed the teachings of Jesus and slowly changed the world. So, let's bring us up to 2022. How do, what do we do with this? The first thing is, is you will face critics of our faith, and they're going to point to this kind of thing online, in conversations. And we need to be equipped. We need to be thoughtful people. We need to understand how to answer when we're asked. But there's other ways to apply this idea of slavery. I mean, oftentimes, um, we take the, the slavery slave and master relationship and we transfer it to the employee-employer relationship. And if you're, if you're a boss thinking about your staff, if you're uh, an employee and you're thinking about your supervisor and the Spirit is stirring your heart today, that, man, I'm not, I'm not really working for the Lord In this relationship, or I'm not really treating my staff like they're made in the image of God. I'm treating them like cogs in the wheel of my prophets. If that's happening, listen to that, because I think that's valuable. I don't think that's the primary application, though, because the reality is slavery is still happening today. The United States consumes $144 billion worth of slavery-produced products every year. That's our electronics, our clothing, fish, chocolate, and sugar. Those are the top five categories of things that we buy and use that are produced by slaves. 40.3 million people are enslaved around the world. And that's more than any other time in human history. 71% of those slaves are female, and 25% of them are children. On average around the world, a slave can be purchased for $90. So what role as Christians do we play in that? See, I think often without realizing it, we are in the seat of the master in Colossians. While we're we are not owning slaves, we're not directly oppressing people, we are, without realizing it, living our lives on the backs of the enslaved. And we are people in this country, in the West, that in many ways have power. We can vote, we can advocate, we can choose to purchase certain things over other things. One thing that is epidemic in our society and in the church even is the use of pornography. Whether you're paying for pornography or not, you are fueling sex trafficking around the world. And this is a complicated issue, and and my intent is not to accuse us personally of sin, because I don't think that's the case. But of all people in the world, we as Christians should be looking for ways to bring justice and equality to enslaved people. I think our call today is to be aware of these things. This idea that our economy is in some ways run by slave labor should be a part of our political philosophy. When we, when we talk about our governments and who we vote for, the idea that what are, we, what are we doing about this issue should be a priority for us. It's one of the many things because of what we believe about the value of people that should matter. And we should never be ashamed of the testimony of Scripture when it comes to slavery because the power of the gospel is evident both in the pages of Scripture and through Christian history as the Scriptures are applied to the human condition, that the love of God and the grace of Jesus Christ changes hearts, and then people decide, like, you know what? It's not okay to own other people anymore. And justice moves forward and society changes. And the world we live in today is one in which slavery has become unthinkable. That's pretty transformative and powerful. So, we are going to take communion. We're going to come to the communion table that Jesus institutes during the Passover meal. And at the Passover meal, the Jewish people are commemorating the day that God has rescued them from slavery. He's he's delivered them from their slave masters in Egypt and he's set them free. And this is the occasion, this particular feast that Jesus uses to shape the communion meal. And he redefines this Passover meal to be a means of participation in his broken body and his shed blood. Because we recognize ultimately we are all born slaves to sin and death. This is our master. And Jesus sacrifices himself on the cross to pay for us, to ransom us, to set us free from those masters. And we are given the invitation in the gospel to lay down our lives as we know them and to become slaves of Christ, bought with His blood, relying on Him in everything as our new master. And I would just encourage you today, like whatever whatever that looks like for you, the Spirit of God is present in this place and He's speaking and we're all in a different place. We all have different cares and concerns and worries. And there's, we all have different blind spots. And, and I would just encourage you as we take communion together to just seek the Lord and, and say, if, if I'm a slave of Christ, God, if I belong to you, if you own me, what should my life look like? What sort of decision should I make? What are the things that I'm missing? And God, he's, he's a gracious king and a gracious master, and, and He will guide us and lead us further into Christlikeness. So as we sing, I invite you to come up and take the bread and the cup. We have wine and juice per the dictates of your conscience. To take these elements that back to your seat to just meditate on the broken body and the shed blood of Christ for your sins and spend a few moments seeking the Lord and asking Him what does it look like to be obedient in everything to Him? You've been listening to the Revelation Church Cordellane Podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.